Thank you so much, and it is good to be back with you. I uh, have been delighted to see so many familiar faces, not the least of which is uh, some of those who are a part of our years of ministry in the Master's Fellowship. Mike and Donnell Roberts, uh, Steve Miracle was our team leader of the singing group Master Design when we put that together originally. In fact, uh, he spent two of uh, his ministry years with us up at Los Gatos Christian Church, and then we sent him back down to you after beating up on him for a while and uh, training him for ministry. And he is so fruitful. I see he's really in his element. One of the great highlights of Steve's ministry up with us in uh, the Los Gatos area was one night at a um, Palm uh, Friday evening service, and uh, or rather Good Friday evening service, and he was leading uh, us in singing, and we were all going along so well until he tried to lead us in How Great Thou Art to the tune of the Old Rugged Cross. And we were all speaking in tongues that we'd never learned before and uh, weren't sure what to do. But uh, Steve has been a tremendous, tremendous blessing to my life. And I know God's really using him here as well. And I do bring you greetings from 49er country, the uh, Super Bowl champions-to-be, as I am confident. Any other 49er fans? All right. A few not 49er fans. Okay. Uh, we do want to have just a word of prayer briefly for the Dallas Cowboys before we come to the text this morning. But... Uh, we are proud of our teams up there, and it's great to meet so many of you from the Bay Area. You've been shuttling us back and forth between the hotel and here, and all four guys, Dave, have been from the Bay Area. I don't know if that was just God's way of uh, encouraging me or what, but uh, we're grateful that so many of you from that area are preparing for the ministry, and God knows we need you up there, so we hope you'll come back and help us out. I was so delighted last night with Russ Moore. Uh, he was clearly in his element here after the years of ministry that God gave him at the Master's College. Chris and I were commenting this morning, it's kind of like going home on a Sunday night. You're all pumped up, you're with your kids, you're with your family, you're just loose and uh, free. And that was a good analogy of the, the freedom and the fruitfulness God gave to us last night. And uh, it's a joy now today to begin with a fresh focus on our commitment to the lost world. I want you, if you will, to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and our text this morning is going to begin in verse 27 through verse 38. Our subject, Awaken to the Harvest. John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. Allow me to read aloud. You read along with me silently, if you will. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Verse 31, And in the meanwhile the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples therefore were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Would you bow with me for one more moment? of expressed dependence on God as we come to His Word. Father, truly we need to awaken to the harvest. 
And this morning, in the excitement and comfort of this environment, may your Holy Spirit somehow accomplish a supernatural work that will lift our eyes beyond the here and now, beyond the setting in which we find ourselves, to the amazing work that your Holy Spirit is doing and desires to do in reaching a lost world. And only He can do that work, so right now we yield to His power, we yield to His insight, we long that the Scriptures would come alive in our hearts, that as a result, we will finish this session with a renewed interest in your global cause and in reaching those lost people even across the street. So Lord, we invite you to accomplish that work in our midst through your servant, through your word, and for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Last year I had the distinct privilege of um, experiencing a meeting, the likes of which I have never before experienced and have not since experienced. For some reason I was invited to a gathering of global leaders which occurred here in the Southern California area. And in this room of about 30 people there were men and uh, a couple of ladies who were actively involved in global evangelism. Just to give you a feel of the caliber of these people, one of them was a pastor from Africa who every Sunday has 70,000 adults in his church, 40,000 children. In the years in which he has been pastoring there in Africa, they have planted 2,000 satellite congregations. And I sat there listening to him talk about what God is doing in Africa. There are others who are there sharing about the awareness of what the Lord is doing around the world right now in this unique window of time leading up to the year 2000. There are men like Paul Cedar, who is the head of the Evangelical Free Church of America, who said that it is his sense that the Holy Spirit is initiating and orchestrating something unprecedented in the area of world evangelization. He said that we have the opportunity in this decade to do what the church has never done before. There's been nothing like it since the first century. There's great anticipation that the church in America might experience a third great awakening and a renewal of vision and passion and prayer that would launch us out into a harvest unlike anything we've ever seen. Another prayer leader, a man named Dick Eastman, who heads up uh, Every Home for Christ and World Literature Crusade, sat there talking about the fact that J. Edwin Orr was always quoted in saying that before God is about to do a great work of evangelism and missions, He always begins by setting His people to prayer. And if you're aware of it as I am, there's unprecedented focus on prayer in our world today. In the San Jose area, just a few months ago, uh, many of the major churches canceled our Sunday evening service, and we had 8,000 Christians praying on that Sunday night. And that's going on around the world. Why? Just so that we can pray? No, so that we can have the heartbeat of God in these days of unprecedented opportunity in the world. Eastman went on to say God has something up his sleeves, and we would do well to remember, and I like this, that he has really big sleeves. <laughs> and he does. These are days of unprecedented opportunity. One of the men at that meeting was Dr. Ralph Winter who in an interview said to me, Daniel, he says, there's nothing parallel to this in all of history. Because what is happening, as you may know, there are 2,000 different initiatives around the world of denominations and churches and parachurch organizations all trying to expedite their effort toward the year 2000, not having anything necessarily to do with eschatology, but just the clear uh, mark, the clear post that is out there for us to aim at. He says, even in the year 1000, most people didn't even know how to keep track of the calendar. He says, but now with unprecedented resources, unprecedented networking, an unparalleled awareness of what God is doing around the world, 
we are facing tremendous days of opportunity. And yet, in the midst of it all, there was a great note of sadness, and that has to do with us, the American church. One man, Thomas Wong, who, uh, according to Ralph Winter, is the most respected third world missions leader, said this, America, under the grace of God, has been the primary missionary force in the world in the past century, and God has used her to spearhead evangelism and mission movements in the last 100 years, and now this great nation as you would agree, needs to be awakened. He says, in recent years it has become lukewarm, lethargic. This sleeping giant needs to be awakened. I was reading in an article on the plane on the way down, an interview with Chuck Colson. Many of you are aware of his new book called The Body. And in this interview, he makes this observation about where we really are in relation to reaching the world and reaching our society for Jesus Christ. He says this, there is an enormous cosmic battle going on. You've got 1.7 billion confessing Christians in the world, 1 million Muslims, or rather 1 billion Muslims, 2.5 billion uh, pantheists in Eastern religions. But he says once you take out the 900 million Catholics, the 300 million Orthodox Christians, you're down to 500 million of whom at least half, he says, or many, most, mostly half, are going to be increasingly irrelevant as mainliners. And so it kind of puts it in perspective that we do have a great task, and yet there is great opportunity, there is great challenge. Yet here in America, the American church is a sleeping giant. I don't know if you're aware of this, but by the year 2000, the two-thirds world will be sending out vast numbers more missionaries than the Western world will. And so God is doing great things all around the world, but here in America it seems to be getting worse and worse and darker and darker. In my travels around the world, I have come to the conclusion that the American church, us, we are the gold-plated caboose. We think we are the engine, but in reality we are the becoming quickly the caboose. Oh, we're gold-plated. We have all the bells and whistles, and we are packed to the gills with resources, but we are barely keeping up with the train of world evangelization and reaching this world for Jesus Christ. And so it can tend to be a little bit discouraging. reminds me of the story of a buffalo herd out on the plain. They were all sitting there minding their business, as buffalo do. And there were two of the kingpins of the herd out on the fringe, and they saw a dust cloud approaching. And they wondered what it was. It got closer and closer and closer, and they began to discern the sound of hoofbeats. And they looked, and it was a huge cowboy on a huge horse riding full barrel toward this buffalo herd. Finally, he came up to these two big buffalo. He stopped, he got off his horse, and he just looked at them. He said, man, you guys are ugly. He said, in fact, you're the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I mean, look at you guys. Funny little horns, big fluffy head, skinny little legs, you know, funny looking rear end, I mean, beady little eyes. I mean, you guys are absolutely ugly. He got back on his horse and rode off. One of the big buffalo looked at the other and he says, man, what do you make of that? The other one turned to him, he says, you know, he said, I think we just heard a discouraging word. <laughs> You know, there are some discouraging words. There are some discouraging words out there as we look at what's going on in the world. But today we come to God's Word. You'll get it, home on the range, you know, you'll catch up. We come to God's Word, and there is great hope because there is great command and there is great promise. And today I want our hearts to be cultivated in that regard as we look at John chapter 4. I want us to see three things about what we have read here this morning. First of all, I want us to put it in context. 
the context and then the catalyst, which uh, is the model of Jesus Christ, and then finally the command that he gives to us. But the context here, obviously, in John chapter 4, is the ministry of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle sets out from the very beginning, as you know, to present the Word that became flesh and that dwelt among us and whose glory we beheld full of, what? Full of grace and truth. John makes it his clear aim to present the life of Jesus Christ. And within that context we find this story. The ministry of Jesus was clearly a focused ministry. Yesterday Chris Mueller said that uh, we here in the final days are like a football team. It's fourth down and goal, only seconds left in the game, and the play that the coach sends in is the church. But I ask you, for what ultimate purpose? Why the church? What is the field? What is the goal? As we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, we've got to understand the context of all that He did. He said the Son of Man came not to what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Everything He did was was calculated and driven by mission. We hear a lot about market-driven ministry. Jesus lived a mission-driven ministry. And we understand that this has to fit within the context of His mission in life. Even in the Gospel of John, there are those key segments when Jesus Himself made statements about why He came. He would say, for this reason I was sent, or I came for this purpose, as He described His ministry, and it was ever on His mind. We've got to see this story in light of that clear mission and that ministry He had. You know John 3.17 The Son of Man came not to judge the world, but that the world through Him should be what? Should be saved. John 5.30, Jesus says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This was a man who understood a clear will, a clear mandate, a clear mission. John chapter 6, He says, This is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me, of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And he goes on and on and on. I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. He says in John chapter 18 before Pilate, For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth so that everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And as he turned to his disciples at the end of this book, he reminded them again as he said, As the Father has sent me, so what? Send I you. And so as we come to this encounter of Jesus Christ with the woman at the well, as you know, that is the setting, we have to understand why He did what He did and what His ministry was and the entire context of what we're about to see, which was His clear mission to reach the lost, to seek and to save those who did not know Him. I want you to understand the catalyst in our hearts that motivates us as we see this passage then. The context was the ministry of Jesus, but the real catalyst for us as we think about reaching the world, is the model of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand what He's been doing here. Uh, This is kind of the the span of His outreach. In chapter 3, He reaches out to a guy named Nicodemus. And in chapter 4, He reaches to a gal who is uh, a woman of ill repute. I call it the Nicky and Vicky span. He he, he, uh, comes to Nicky, who is indeed the ultimate of the religious leaders. I mean, he was the teacher of the Pharisees. He was a man of great morals, of great character, of great reputation. And he gives to him the message that you must be born again. And then, chapter 4, he comes to Vicky, who uh, winds up at a well, who is a Samaritan. Uh, uh, their theology is all messed up. They are rejected. They are half-breeds. Uh, they are the ones who really are indeed the, the, the scum of the earth, in the sense, humanly, for the minds of the Jews. 
And he reaches out to her with great compassion. And so we see that Jesus' methodology and his model was a highly relational model. He reached out to the epitome of religious people. And at the same time, he reached out to the epitome of those who had been rejected by society. We find Jesus here clearly reaching out with this clear sense of mission to people. I want you to notice something. Go back to chapter 4 just for a moment. And look with me, if you will, at uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 at the very beginning of this chapter to see what it was that Jesus avoided in order to carry out this ministry. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, it says parenthetically, although he himself was not doing it, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Now that may not seem significant, but when you think about it, Jesus clearly made a choice to avoid some of the things that so easily entrap you and me when it comes down to reaching lost people. Because there were two things he was facing here. One was controversy. Because whenever the Pharisees picked up on something Jesus was doing, you can imagine it is going to cause them to be embroiled in some kind of controversy. And how easily we get mucked up in controversy and in, in some of the arguments that may not have a lot to do with the primary issues. And Jesus avoided that, but then secondly, He avoided the competitiveness or the competition that often derails us as well. Comparing ourselves with ourselves, we become unwise and we wind up trying to imitate that great model down the street or, or that great church across the country or trying to be like someone else. And the competitiveness of the American culture keeps us from the focus on lost people who in our own culture need Jesus Christ. You see here, clearly Jesus avoided controversy and competition in order to do what? In order to go through Samaria and to reach this woman that no one really cared about who happened at midday to be out drawing water. And so His model is a model that challenges our hearts, that motivates us truly to make a difference. And notice how common His model is. Aren't you glad that, that we're not trying to follow someone who, who amassed for himself a great multi-million dollar enterprise? Aren't you glad we're not having to follow in the steps of someone who, who was known for his uh, uh, television outreach or for his, his great uh, abilities or talents, but someone who was empowered as the God-man, who in relational avenues made a difference? I mean, Jesus hardly traveled 150 miles away from his birthplace, and yet he changed the world. And here in this case, you know he used the Samaritan woman, as we read later on in verses 39 through 42, to reach an entire village. I was delighted last night as Russ shared about uh, some common people in his church who have made a difference, a la the cardboard living Christmas tree that has become a spectacular outreach for their church. There's a guy like that I'd like to share with you from our congregation. His name was Scott Killam. Scott came to our church about a year and a half ago, unsaved, came to Christ with his young wife and their little son, AJ, had the privilege of baptizing them. And in our particular setting, our church has had a real struggle relating to the, uh, the community. Uh, the town of Los Gatos uh, really did not like us very much. We've been trying to reach out to them, trying to serve the community, trying to build roads in order to reach them with the gospel. And we've seen some great progress. But one of the things we felt compelled to do was to do an officer appreciation event uh, focusing on policemen. It was in our bulletin. Anyone interested in uh, helping us with this, please come to an organizational meeting and this was last summer. Scott Killam showed up. Scott, as a brand new believer, believed that God wanted him to make a difference. And so he basically took the bull by the horns. 
he was walking into the offices of every chief of police in the whole South Bay area. I remember one day he took me with him into the, uh, the office of the assistant chief of police there in San Jose, Bill Mallett. And Bill stood up and indicated that he watched our, our uh, church's broadcast every Sunday. And we began to share the gospel with him and he's in progress. But Scott continued to work and to work and to work as this young, uh, really uninitiated believer. The result was this past November on a Sunday evening, we had seven chiefs of police from all around the South Bay area there sharing their stories. We had policemen telling about what it was like to be shot in the line of duty. We had our people crying, asking them some questions. We shared the gospel. Our people gathered around and prayed for the police officers and their family, and many of them came to know Jesus Christ. Why? Again, because one person who in the commonplace areas of life decided, I can make a difference. And what I love about this model is that it doesn't take great talent, great wealth, great tools. It simply took the Lord who in the commonplace scenarios of life gave the life-changing truth of Jesus Christ and who gave it to someone who passed it on faithfully. And that can happen for you. And that can happen for me. I want us to look primarily, if you will, at the content of what Jesus says here as we focus now on verses 32 through 38. And we'll do so quickly. The context is the ministry of Jesus. The catalyst is the model of Jesus that motivates us to make a difference in the world. And as we come to these days of unprecedented harvest, I want you to see the content of what Jesus teaches here. His mandate to us. There are four things I want to extract from this text that are very clear to us as things that we need to understand if we, during this unprecedented time in world history as young people, as pastors, as adults, as teachers, are going to make a difference for Jesus Christ. And the first thing we must understand, if you'll notice with me in verses 32 through 34, is the principle of fulfillment. Notice what Jesus says. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Uh, they came back. Uh, they had been gone. Jesus had been there in His witnessing mission with His lady, and they knew He was hungry. So they said, Rabbi, eat. He says, Guys, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Verse 33, the disciples therefore were saying to one another, No one brought Him anything to eat, did they? Does He have some uh, a Tommy burger hit under His toga here? Or uh, does someone bring Him some Kentucky fried? What, what is He talking about? So He clarifies, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus is very emphatic, contrasting them and their heart attitude with His own heart attitude. He says, I have food that you do not know about. And then again in verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Clearly, they had a lack of understanding. They were wondering in verse 33 what he meant when he was talking about food. Jesus makes it very clear in verse 34 that there's a whole plane of fulfillment, guys, that I want you to catch on to here. I want you to understand what fulfillment is really all about. And so he emphatically says, that which sustains me, that which feeds me, that which nourishes me, is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish His work. To bring it to fulfillment. Obviously, we're in a day and age in which everyone is wanting to be fulfilled. It is that me generation, that consumer mentality that Russ spoke about last night. Jesus makes it very clear. If you're going to be fulfilled, if you are going to be happy, if you are going to truly find meaning in life, it is found in doing the will of the Father and accomplishing that work. 
bringing it to fulfillment. And gang, for us, that is to awaken to the harvest and to be difference makers in light of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world today. Jesus says, the will of Him who sent me is that agenda outside of myself. It is that purpose that has been assigned to me by divine mandate to bring to completion the work of God. Our country is much like uh, Israel after they had returned and had begun to rebuild the temple. You remember that? The prophet Haggai is brought to the occasion when they had laid the foundation but they had not finished the work. Instead, they were all living off in their paneled houses and, and no one even seemed to care that the temple had not yet been rebuilt. Very similarly, we in America have lost that sense of the unfinished task we in our comfort zone are enjoying all the accoutrements of American Christianity. And yet, the tragedy is, there is much work yet to be done. And Jesus says, if you're going to find fulfillment, that is where that fulfillment will be found. In accomplishing the work that He sent us to do. And we know what that work is. Russ read it last night. Going, in, going into all the world and making disciples of all the nations. Jesus said it in Mark this way, to preach the gospel to every creature. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we see that vision of the heavenly throng crying out to the Lord, You have been slain and you did purchase for God with your blood men from every what? Every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. That is the work yet to be accomplished. And Jesus says, Guys, you must understand what's going to make you happy. It's not in an out burger. It's not what you eat for lunch. It's not any of the physical provision you might surround yourself with in life. But it is that eternal significance of knowing that you are doing the will of God and bringing to completion the unfinished task for which I have commissioned you. Today, right now in the world, there are two billion who have never heard of Jesus Christ. There are 12,000 unreached people groups who have no valid gospel witness or do not have access to a valid gospel witness. And again, those are just statistics in our mind. But needless to say, the work is yet to be done. And the greatest prescription for any of us is indeed a missions diet, an evangelistic focus that will fulfill us. J. Campbell White, who lived many years ago as the secretary of the layman's missionary movement, said it this way, and I hope you'll listen because it so powerfully speaks to this point of fulfillment. He says, Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within His followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world He came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with a boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of His eternal plans. The men who are getting everything, who are putting everything rather into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless reward. What's the point? Jesus said, guys, number one, you have to understand the principle of fulfillment. What satisfies me is not going to lunch. What satisfies me is, is not the things that are seen, but it is the things that are unseen. It is the fulfillment of the will of the Father that has brought me here and that only will satisfy the deepest needs of your own hearts as well. Now secondly, not only must we understand the principle of fulfillment, but we must understand from this text, verse 35, the potential of failure. Notice what he says in verse 35. He says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? 
Jesus is noting their procrastination. Jesus is reading into their hearts. Jesus is pulling out from them the reality of what is hindering them from making a difference. He says, guys, what's going on in your mind is you're thinking in human terms. You're thinking of the harvesting schedule, humanly speaking. And you're saying, hey, there are four months and then comes the harvest. You're procrastinating. But look down at verse 36. He says, already, right now though, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. Jesus is making it very clear here. There is a potential of failure. There is the possibility, men, that you will miss this. Because you are saying, someday, sometime, four months from now, I'll make a difference. Jesus is saying, right now, the harvest is happening. Young people, I would challenge you. While you are in these times of preparation, it would be a grave error to say, well, three years from now, I'll begin to launch myself into the harvest of souls for Christ. Or two years from now, when I finish my schooling, I'll begin to to, uh, take advantage of the opportunities to witness. That's the same mindset Jesus was addressing here. There is that potential of failure. There is that potential of sleeping through days of harvest, of not noticing what God is doing. And all around you right now, there are opportunities for those of you who will see them, who will feel them, who will understand them. And that was what Jesus was addressing here. As Leon Morris says, Jesus had an urgent sense of mission and these words convey something of it to the disciples. They must not lazily relax. Comfortable in the thought that there is no need to bestir themselves. The fields are now ready for harvest. The disciples must now acquire a sense of urgency in their task. One man has kind of noted our apathy, our procrastination in this way. He said there are more liars behind hymn books than any other place in America. You ever thought of it that way? But listen to his observations. He says, we sing sweet hour of prayer, but we go for days without a serious prayer escaping our lips. We sing onward Christian soldiers, 